What do you think of when you hear the word fungi? Is it something in your risotto or lacing your stilton? Is it growing on that loaf of bread you haven't quite got through? Or is it the bane of your bathroom after all of those steamy showers? Or maybe synthesizing cutting edge medicine, biological laundry powders, making chocolate and helping trees communicate. Fungi is fundamental to so much of modern life, and yet many of us have no idea. There's the less glamorous and the more unpleasant side to fungi, of course, but that's dwarfed by the glamorous, very sexy, beautiful, and fundamentally important to the functioning of the entire global ecosystem. Hello, I'm James Wong. Thanks for downloading Unearthed. Mysteries from an Unseen World from the Royal Botanic Gardens, Kew. Today, we're doing a fanfare to fungi. We'll hear about the shadowy kingdom that's been a helping hand to humankind for over 6,000 years. They're not plants, they're not animals, but they're a crucial element to life on Earth and are still shrouded in mystery. In fact, we're still just scratching the surface as we discover more and more about the stars of this story. It's thought we've only discovered a tiny fraction of the species that exist. They're in our soils, in our homes, in our factories, food and medicine. The incredible properties and behaviours of fungi have been harnessed for mighty leaps by humankind. But with their mystery comes so much possibility. But this episode isn't for the faint-hearted. It's all the horrible bits, the head, the neck, the back, just like Alien, comes bursting out in slow motion. It's not a quick burst. This takes hours and days. It's drawn out and horrible. Gruesome quirks aside, imagine solving some of the greatest global challenges with a substance right under our noses. I'm talking plastic pollution, sustainable production, depression medication, cancer drugs... And of course, a decent bar of chocolate. Today, Q's experts are going to reveal how our day-to-day -day lives are bustling with fungi. And there is some really weird stuff on the way. We're talking tripping on magic mushrooms, delving through religious history, real-life zombies, and obviously, geeking out about what's in your average bag of porcini. This could be our strangest story yet. Our first story begins with a psychedelic drug trial that threw up some unexpected findings. Following that, one team began to investigate the effect of magic mushrooms on depression. Depression is now the largest cause of disability in the Western world. Psychopharmacologist Dr. David Nutt told me how he came to explore the impact of a Class A drug on the brain. In all Western countries, the burden of depression is greater than that of cancer or cardiovascular disease. Why is that? Because it often starts in adolescence and it can be enduring for the rest of your life. Depression is a serious medical problem. And the truth is we can now visualize it. If we image the brains of people with depression, we can see that they are different. They've got different circuits. They're also shrunk because of the stress. Of the, the stress hormones are, are so high that they shrink the brains. And that's why we needed innovative treatments, because 
modern antidepressants like the SSRIs are pretty good. About half of depressed people will get significant benefit, but that still leaves half who need something else. The point about depression is it doesn't just kill through suicide, but depression is a state of chronic stress on your body. So it's strongly associated with deaths from heart disease, from strokes, from diabetes, from dementia. I think my claim to fame is that I've probably given more different kinds of drugs to human beings than anyone alive. But the good news is they're all still alive too. About 15 years ago, we decided it was time to explore the brain science of magic mushrooms. The typical magic mushroom in the UK is uh, the Liberty Cap, but others grow here and around the world there are many other forms. Why did we want to study them? Because the active ingredient in most of these magic mushrooms is a substance called psilocybin. Psilocybin stimulates a particular subtype of serotonin receptors in the brain. People probably know of serotonin. This is the neurotransmitter which is deficient in depression. But turns out there are about 16 different serotonin receptors in the brain. These uh, mushrooms have a particular impact on one of them, so-called 5-HT2A. We gave people a trip in a brain scanner, right? Well, after that, you see that people often say they felt better, that the world was more alive, the colours were brighter. Often people said, my mood was improved for several weeks, which is pretty odd when can you consider they were lying in a scanner for a couple of hours, you know, having this trip. Anyway, you had these enormously powerful experiences, visual, sensational, etc., inspirational, insightful. When we did the brain scans, the brain wasn't turned on at all. In fact, all we saw were areas of the brain that were turned off. And under psychedelics, you take away those control centers and the brain actually goes back to this very childish state, which is very undisciplined. We, we call it entropic. And that lets the rest of the brain do its own thing. So just as if you take a conductor out of an orchestra, it, it might decide it doesn't want to play bark, it might want to play jazz. If you take the conductor out of the brain, the brain actually can do whatever it likes. We're switching off parts of the brain that control behavior. And then we realized that one of the parts we were switching off was the part of the brain that controls mood. This is one of the revolutions in sort of neuroscience of depression in the last 20 years. We now realize that we used to think that depression was an absence of positive mood, but we now know the opposite. We now know that depression is an active state where part of the brain drives depressive thinking. And in fact, we know where that part of the brain is. And we know that to get out of depression, all the treatments of depression, whether they're talking therapies or drug therapies, they all suppress that part of the brain. Depressed people, for reasons we don't understand, end up getting locked into a negative thinking mode. That negative thinking mode is driven by a particular area of the brain. Treatments of depression dampen down the depression center. Magic mushrooms dampen down that part of the brain too. And so we thought, well, maybe we could use it in depressed people. So our depression trial was, was a, what we call an example of translational medicine. You go from a neuroscience, a brain imaging experiment, and then you make a prediction about a clinical experiment, and you discover that it works, and it did work, and it was remarkable. And a single magic mushroom trip produced, in some people, 
recovery from chronic depression, resistant depression, depression that had not responded to drugs, that had not responded to psychotherapy. Some of them are still well now, five years later. So we have just finishing a study where we have given people two trips instead of one, because one of the things we found was that although some people did extremely well and stayed well for months or years, the majority of people with chronic depression their mood starts to drop. Their depression creeps back over the next weeks or months. But we're also comparing it with a standard antidepressant drug treatment. One of our patients had this wonderful description. He said, psilocybin, you know, it was like ingesting your own therapist. It's an intriguing study. You might have heard of David before. He was the professor sacked from his post on a UK drug committee for saying that psychedelics were less harmful to society than both booze and tobacco. We know that magic mushrooms have a powerful effect on the brain, and as a Class A drug, they've been banned in the UK since 2005. But plants and fungi are not inherently good or bad. It's all about the way that they're used. I'm going to talk to David in a minute, but for a bit of background, I want to introduce you to Q's librarian of mushrooms, my mate, Dr. Lee Davies. I'm Lee Davies. I'm one of the Fungarium curators here at Q Gardens, and my job is to look after Q's scientific collection of fungi. We are like a huge library of mushrooms. I'm there to help visitors to the library find the mushroom that's right for them. The collections of Q have been here like over 150 years, and at that time they were just thought to be unusual plants, plants that just didn't photosynthesize. But now, of course, we know much better than that. So they're, they're more closely related to people than they are in, in a DNA sense. They're, they're more closely related to animals than they are plants. Yes. I mean, in every sense, plants split off from, if you like, the big tree of life, the big branch that became plants split off way back before anything that we recognize today. Um, and it was only much later that animals and fungi split off from each other. So biologically, chemically, DNA, in every sense, fungi are more closely related to you than we are to a plant or to a fungus, than a fungus is to a plant. So sell fungi to me, because like best case scenario, I'm thinking of mushrooms. Worst case scenario, it's, you know, stuff that might be growing between your toes or on a shower curtain. Like this isn't necessarily the glamorous of sciences, or am I just wrong? Um, you're wrong, I'm afraid. Sorry. <laughs> I mean, there, I'm usually wrong. It's fine. There's, there's, there is. I mean, there are. There's the less glamorous and the more unpleasant side to fungi, of course. But that's dwarfed by the, I mean, from my point of view, glamorous, very sexy, beautiful, and fundamentally important to the functioning of the entire global ecosystem. I mean, we think of plants as being important to you know to the globe. You know, they produce air, they produce food. All of the, you know, all of that. But plants can't do any of that without fungi. Fungi are underpinning all the ecosystems on Earth. They're the biggest recyclers. They're supporting plants in everything that plants are doing. Fungi are integral to human life. You know, you pick any aspect of our lives, whether it's food, agriculture, industry, health, and fungi are there. Whether it's the actual fungus or whether it's a fungal product or whether we're using the fungi as, if you like, a biological factory to make um, compounds, enzymes, or drugs that we use. There is, you know, there's, there's nothing in our lives that fungi don't touch in some way or other, whether we're aware of it or not. 
I remember you telling me in the pub once that these fungi can be massive. Like when you think about the biggest trees, the things that really make you feel small and awe-inspired, when you look at a giant uh, sequoia in California and it just looks like a, like a mountain or a building, it's impossible to imagine how big they are. But the biggest fungi are bigger than the biggest plants. Yeah, by an order of magnitude. I mean, you could stand under a giant sequoia and feel like, I don't know, a mouse stood next to a human but the biggest fungus, the big, well, it's the biggest living organism on Earth, probably ever. It's, it lives in North America. It's called the humongous fungus. It's actually it's a type of honey fungus. So it's it's clo- it's related to those things that gardeners hate, and it lives in North America, over in Washington, Oregon, that sort of st- area, and it covers an area of four square miles. This just it's difficult to even picture. So like the blue whale has nothing on this. But is there something more fundamental to the use of fungi? I, I hear there's a lot of medicinal applications. Yeah. Fungi are really good chemists. They make an awful lot of different chemical compounds that we are able to use. Probably the, the most important ones are in things that we now use as major pharmaceutical products. So penicillin, antibiotics come from a fungus. They were discovered, I think, about 100 years ago now. And they've saved hundreds of millions of lives and fundamental to human existence, pretty much, antibiotics. Without them, most people in life today couldn't get their head around what it would be like to live without antibiotics. And antibiotics are the one everyone knows about, but there are a lot of drugs that are basically becoming mainstream and common to most people, or at least are being used in a way that most of us would actually recognise, even if it wasn't the fact that it comes from a fungus. So statins, for instance, are a a major drug that's used to treat high blood pressure and heart disease. One of the major types of statins that's used was discovered in a fungus. Organ transplants these days are increasingly common and most people know someone who might have had an organ transplant. They are only possible because of of a compound discovered in a type of fungus that suppresses the immune system. And so after an organ transplant, you have immune suppressant drugs to stop your body attacking and rejecting that new organ. And without the, the, that compound, those cyclosporin drugs from fungi, organ transplants just aren't possible at all. Thanks for listening to Unearthed. I'll be back again in just a minute. But first, here's a message from our supporter, Kim Cottrell. As a charity, the Royal Botanic Gardens Q is facing a severe funding crisis right now. The impact of coronavirus has created a financial shortfall of 15 million pounds. This money is vital for the upkeep of these beautiful botanic gardens and crucial to continuing its global conservation work. Plants and fungi hold many of the answers to the world's biggest challenges, such as climate change, food security, and biodiversity loss. And Q needs to play a role in furthering the science and identifying desperately needed solutions. If there's one positive thing that could come out of this pandemic, it will be to encourage each and every one of us to look afresh and with urgency at these global challenges. If you are enjoying this podcast and feel inspired by the work that Q does, please go to Q.org to donate today to help not only protect Q, but also preserve the future of our planet. Q's mycology unit sees 20 staff at work exclusively on this epic collection of samples, categorizing, organizing, and analyzing an ever-expanding database. The mycology archives at Q are a vital resource for research all over the world. 
One of Lee's colleagues is Dr. Laura Martinez-Suz. She's an expert in fungal ecology. I'm a researcher at Kew and mycologist. And I work with a particular group of fungi that are called mycorrhizal fungi. And these fungi live in symbiosis with roots of plants. Well, it started in my early 20s. When I was finishing university, I studied biology and I specialized in botany. But I was amazed about not only the diversity, the high number of species of fungi, but also about the diversity of shapes, colors, how beautiful they were, but also how present we have them in our day-to-day lives. And we don't even realize because we don't see them most of the times. Fungi are everywhere from the moment you wake up. When you wake up and you are wearing pajamas, if they are made of cotton, many fungi produce enzymes that they're used in the treatment of the cotton fabric. In your bathroom cabinet... If you have high cholesterol, statins, these cholesterol-lowering drugs, they are isolated from fungi. Or if you have migraine, there is this product that is called ergotamine, that is a fungal product as well. Or if you have a bacterial infection, you would take an antibiotic, penicillin, for instance. On laundry day... If you would like to wash your pyjamas, there are lipases, they are called enzymes that are obtained from fungi that are used to break down lipids in the stains of clothes. And these enzymes are used in washing powder. So when you are doing your laundry, you are also using products that are obtained from fungi. The food in your fridge or that cold beer at the end of a long day. You think about fermentation, you are thinking about yeasts. They are unicellular fungi, but there are many fungi that are multicellular as well. For instance, worm, that is a substitute of um, meat and is made of fungal protein. I was really disappointed when I discovered that it's made from protein from a mold. I thought they would be like mushrooms or something like that, but it's, it's not even that. They force the production of protein in a, in a strain of mold. It's amazing to think what a fundamental part of our day that fungi forms. And thanks to new methods, scientists are only just realizing how much more there is to learn. We discover fungi every single day. I think every year there are thousands of new species described. And molecular techniques have accelerated that very much. Presumably, you're finding new species all the time in in even very everyday places. Well, yes, just in soil, wherever you dig up a hole, probably you find new species. And what about in the trade? Like if you you were to buy stuff from a supermarket? Oh, well, we did a study a few years ago. At that time, Bryn Dentinger who is now at the University of Utah, he was the head of mycology and I was his uh, research assistant. And he's an expert in porcini. I don't know if you know porcini. I know it from eating it, but that's where my knowledge begins and ends. (laughs) So one of the species is Boletus edulis, and they are these chunky, fleshy mushrooms that instead of gills underneath the cup, they have uh, pores. So it's like a yellowish sponge and they are delicious. Many people use them uh, to prepare risotto. So he's an expert on that group of fungi in the genus. His wife, Rachel, brought one day for dinner a packet of dried porcini from China, but uh, she bought it in a grocery market in, in London. He was quite suspicious about the look of the small dried pieces. And he told me, Laura, select randomly 15 pieces, no. because I don't think this is what they said in the packet. So I 
extracted the DNA from those pieces. I got the sequences and we uh, ran phylogenetic analysis that allowed uh, species delimitation and uh, to identify them as well. And what he found or we found was that none of the three species were Boletus edulis. And they, the three of them, even if other people obtained sequences and they were using phylogenetic analysis, they weren't even named or described or, or formally described in science before. So th- these were not uh, varieties of porcini. They were completely separate mushrooms. They were all categorized together. Yes, they were three different species <laughs> within. Yeah, he was going to eat something that science didn't have names for it. <laughs> So tell me, tell me what mycorrhizal means. Myco comes from the Greek mykes, that means fungus, and rhiza means root. So it means fungus root. And it's a symbiosis between a plant, the root of a plant, and a fungus. So mycorrhizas are a symbiosis between the two, these two organisms where both benefit. So fungi colonize the roots of the trees, and extending to the soil, getting water and nutrients that they pass to the plant. And the plant in exchange give them sugars or carbohydrates from the photosynthesis because fungi cannot do photosynthesis. So not only is there an invisible network that's connecting plants to share information, even food, we don't know. It's like a hidden WhatsApp group or hundreds of hidden WhatsApp <laughs> groups where people are exchanging information and we can't even tap in to figure out what they're doing, who's talking to who. Exactly. And some of them, they get excluded of the, of the group. That's like know? my whole life. <laughs> <laughs> it's not only trees and plants that have a complex and intertwined history with the world of fungi. Dr. David Nutt told me a little bit more about our cultural connection with the mushroom. Amanita muscaris was the mushroom that was most preferred for experiential taking and, uh, and um, sort of insight development in northern Europe, in Lapland, and in Siberia. And it was widely used in Siberia. In fact, the term shaman is a Siberian term, which refers to the special person who would administer the Amanita muscaris mushroom to people in you know, Russia, Siberia, over many, many millennia. Amanita muscari. People probably do know that, even if they don't know the Latin name. It's the uh, red and white spotted mushroom that you see in like fairy tales. And uh, you see it maybe as decorations under Christmas trees, artificial ones. Why is that? Because if you take Amanita, you get experiences which are somewhat different from magic mushrooms, but are nonetheless quite interesting. It's not just humans that take Amanita. Reindeer love Amanita. (laughs) If a a reindeer comes upon a little mushroom, you know, this red-spotted mushroom, red and white-spotted mushroom, it'll eat it, and it'll get high on it. And the other reindeer know that. In fact, the concept of Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer is one which has derived from the fact that reindeer become very weird when they take and eat Amanita. And the use of hallucinogens and psychedelic drugs is actually well documented in a, in a range of species, not just humans. So it's not just a universal human trait. It, it's, it's been demonstrated in very, very distinct animal groups, too. Well, that is right. In fact, there are species of um, primates who dig up the roots, the ibogaine root, and use that in, uh, in, in West Africa. The nature of Amanita, is, the, the active ingredient is very different from psilocybin. Psilocybin works on the serotonin system 
whereas Amanita works on the GABA system. Amanita muscaris has got a substance called muscimol in it, which works on the GABA system. So there are different neurotransmitter systems which underpin the actions of these different kinds of mushrooms, but both have got strong history. And Amanita, there is a theory that Amanita was cherished, dried Amanita mushrooms were cherished by early Christians as a way of developing uh, and more importantly, preserving the integrity and the, uh, and the sort of bonding of their small group, the, little, the Christian cells, which were coming together to survive the uh, oppression and the slaughter by the Romans. So there's a very interesting story that Amanita was a central part of the origins of Christianity and persisted in Christian use uh, until about the 12th century. In recent years, we have learnt so much about the fascinating world of fungi. But what does that mean for future science? I'm going to chat with Lee again now to hear more about the weird and wonderful aspects we've learnt about beyond food and medicine. What makes fungi fungi is that they have this compact, this chemical called chitin. Um, it's this really tough biopolymer, and it's what they make their cell walls out of. So every single cell of a fungus has chitin in it as a kind of protective part. Arthropods all use chitin to make their crunchy out exoskeleton. So if a beetle or a spider is crunchy, it's because of the chitin. So fungi are already, if you like, pre-adapted to dealing with chitin. So the spore, when it lands on the exoskeleton, can basically eat its way through the, through the chitinous part of the insect. I mean, at one hand, yes, it's like alien. That's the nice version. Um, the other, the other type, the, if you like, the more complex relationship, is is more like a zombie. Uh, that's what I was going to say because they don't just eat them. They actually, which is bad enough, but the fact that they control their brains in some way. Yeah. Is, am I have I understood that right? Being a plant person and not a fungi person. Yeah. There was some uh, research recently which shed a bit of light on it, and it makes it even grimmer. So um, the most, these most complex ones are these, these ophiocordyceps and they infect ants and they have very complex species-specific relationships in that they'll only infect a certain type of ant. I'm so happy this isn't humans yet. I mean, I mean uh, we'll see. I mean, it, no, it's unlikely to happen to humans for a while, but evolution being what it is. When an ant gets infected, particularly things like leaf-cutting ants who live in these huge super colonies, the fungus gets inside, it starts to eat it, um, digest its insides while it's still alive, but then it starts to release these compounds into the ant which make the ant's behaviour change. So, for instance, an ant, which, you know, these leaf-cutting ants, it'll make them climb towards the light. So they'll climb up a tree or a bush or, you know, any kind of plant nearby. And what they will do then is the fungal tissue grows into the jaw muscles of the ant and it controls the jaw muscles a bit like a puppet. And so the ant bites onto something, so whether it's a stem or a leaf, and once it's bitten on, the fungus doesn't let it let go. So it's hyper-contracting these jaw muscles, so the ant is trapped, biting onto this leaf against its will, whilst the fungus finishes off the insides. And then once it's finished eating it, it bursts out and produces this little fruiting body, nice and high up in the trees or the bushes, so the spores and where does it burst out of? As if this is, I have been traumatized enough by this story. All the horrible bits: the head, the neck, the back, just like Alien, it comes bursting out in slow motion. It's not a quick burst. It's you know, it's this takes hours and days. It's not 
It's it's drawn out and horrible if you're an insect. So so what's the benefit of it making the ant climb to this high place? It's to, it's to infect the largest number of other ants. Because um, most spores rely on wind dispersal. They're very, very small and very light. And so if there's a breeze, it'll carry them quite far. If you're one of these cordyceps fungi that's infecting an ant that's on the ground, your spores aren't necessarily going to carry very far. If you're 10 feet up in a tree, your spores will disperse further. So, so tell me about new drug discovery or, or even new chemical discoveries in fungi. How does that work? What will usually happen when it comes to turning these novel enzymes or novel drugs into something that we want to use ourselves, um, industrial, on a, you know, on a big scale, what will quite often happen is that we'll take the genes for res- responsible for making that compound and put it into a different fungus that we know we can cultivate in industrial settings really easily. So what you find, for instance, is that for industrial enzymes that we use in things from washing powder, cotton making, leather production, all of that, we tend to use a group of fungi called Aspergillus. It's a filamentous fungus. It's really easy to grow and farm and ferment in big tanks. So what we'll do is we'll take the gene from the wild fungus that produces something we want, and we'll put that gene into the Aspergillus will then use the aspergillus to make that product rather than the wild one. What an incredible and mysterious world fungi occupies. Right under our noses, too. In one short episode, I've heard how fungi underpins so many aspects of our daily routines. But it's amazing to think that we're still only just starting to discover this kingdom and its world-changing properties. To think that everything from penicillin to drugs for treating debilitating diseases like MS can be developed from our fungal friends is amazing. But what about all those unanswered questions? Trees talking to one another, insects turning into zombies, plastic munching cultures. All of this is totally new science. It really makes you wonder at what we might be able to achieve by harnessing this secretive natural resource and fills me with hope too that some of our biggest global challenges might yet be solvable thanks to the weird and wonderful behaviours of fungi. Next time, in Unearthed Mysteries from an Unseen World from Royal Botanic Gardens Q. Losing one's child, there is nothing worse than that. That is the worst death. It was immediately apparent that there was a problem in the food labelling section for this country. We'll find out how a teenager's tragic death exposed a loophole in UK allergy law. This is a field that definitely needs more work on. I'll find out how plants can be both life-saving and fatal and ask how society can adapt to what's on our kitchen table. And I'll be speaking to the Q scientists who are shaping how big business guides you and I about what's in our cosmetics, medicines and foods. Make sure you don't miss it by subscribing on your podcast app now. You can share this episode with the hashtag QUnearthed and follow at QGardens on social media.